This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, friend. Welcome to this exciting episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. I know this is one episode that you probably have been waiting for. I have a very special guest with me today, and it is such an honor to have him on my show. If you have ever delved into the world of keto diet, then you probably have heard of Dr. Eric Westman. Dr. Eric Westman is an associate professor of medicine at Duke University. He is both certified in obesity medicine and internal medicine, and he founded the Duke Keto Medicine Clinic in 2006 after eight years of clinical research regarding low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets. He is past president and master fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association and fellow of the Obesity Society. He is an editor of the textbook Obesity, Evaluation and Treatment Essentials, which I happen to read for my obesity medicine boards, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The New Atkins for a New You, Cholesterol Clarity and Keto Clarity, and his latest new book, End Your Carb Confusion. My friend, don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to get notified as soon as the new episodes are released so that you don't miss out on all this amazing information that is getting provided on my podcast. And please don't forget to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Welcome, Dr. Westman. It's such an honor to have you on my podcast. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for coming. So let's talk about right at the beginning, what is the difference between a ketogenic diet and a low-carb diet? I think they just get intermingled very frequently. Well, a ketogenic diet is a very, very low-carbohydrate diet. So you might think of it as an ultra-low-carbohydrate diet so that your body starts generating ketones to fill in where the blood sugar used to work or glucose used to work. So another way to say it is a keto diet is a type of low-carbohydrate diet. All keto diets are low-carb. Not all low-carb diets are keto. I see. So, you know, there's a lot of data that's out there, and there are so many different diets that are available, right? You have the whole food plant-based diet, you have the ketogenic diet or the low-carb diet, you have so many other diets available, you know, and the problem occurs with really with the adherence. So how does this low-carb ketogenic diet work in terms of helping you with the weight loss? And do you think it is the only option in your arsenal as far as weight loss goes? Yeah, there are a lot of ways to help people achieve better health, including weight loss. And a lot of different diets work and a lot of evidence, clinical trials being published about different types of diets, you know. And in fact, the diets that we use as physicians have more in common than have differences. So that often you'll hear a kind of a false choice of you either have to have vegetables or you have to have meat and not, I mean, no, in fact, all the diets that work have a commonality and that we ask people not to have the junk foods, not to have lots of sugar, not to have lots of highly processed packaged foods. That seems to be the bad guy. <laughs> so, and no, I don't think we know how to match people with the best diet, it's often trial and error 
to find out what people feel best while eating and then what someone can achieve long term is often a reflection of how well they feel. So when you match a keto diet with someone, for example, it's easy and they find that's the one to do. It's easy for them to do it long term. So not only a metabolic match, but it's also a fit in terms of the type of food that people like to eat, because that is a big issue uh, that people eat pleasure and comfort. But I think there are a lot of ways to be healthy and a keto diet is right up there with all of the others in terms of level of evidence for it being healthy. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I tell people that when I look at obesity, I look at it, it is a chronic disease. So when we talk about these interventions and these diets, what I tell people is you have to find something that you can sustain because you want this disease to be in remission. It's not going to be cured forever because if you lose that kind of consistency with whatever intervention that you're taking, then this disease is going to come back. So the way I look at it is that it goes into remission with whatever intervention you're going to take, but you have to be consistent with that intervention, be it your lifestyle, be it your diet, exercise, medications, whatever have you, right? So that's very important to understand that not everybody will like a ketogenic or a low-carb diet, and not everybody will like a whole food plant-based diet. So it really has to be individualized to the patient. Yes, although when I talk to someone who has never really done a low-carb keto diet before, there are often lots of misconceptions. Uh, there's a, a, a feeling that you're going to be deprived and how can I live without my bread? And, and it's really interesting because within a week, it's usually a day or two, those cravings go away. And so I have people come back to my office I teach them and I see them struggling. Well, what am I going to do without fruit and all that? And then a week later, they come back and they don't even miss it. And they're <laughs> kind of embarrassed. Well, because you have to understand that the hunger goes away and the cravings go away very fast. So it's unlike just about every other diet that people have tried before. And then we do call it lifestyle because if you don't want to regain the weight, then you don't want to go back to that diet that made you gain weight. And while, no, you probably don't have to be keto the rest of your life if you do a therapeutic keto diet to reverse diabetes or obesity, you'll want to make sure you don't go back to, don't revert back to the way of eating that got you those diseases. And of course, obesity medicine, you teach people and you reinforce this along the way, and then you support them when they've achieved their goal. And that, you know, what a great job we have to help people regain their health that other doctors have no clue on how to help. So that's a great privilege to be an obesity medicine doctor these days. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Now, what is the macronutrient composition with regards to, you know, the fats and the protein? Because the Atkins diet was a little higher on the fats. And then there is also data about the moderate amount of protein being slightly helpful. So what kind of a composition do you aim for when your patients who are coming to your clinic? Yeah, you know, there's a difference between a ketogenic diet for epilepsy, where this is a fascinating. Some children will have their seizures go away overnight when you stop feeding them carbohydrates. And what they've learned is that there's a certain macro ratio of fat to protein for every meal, and you have to be very careful to achieve that. I don't use that at all. In my program, I keep the carbohydrates really low, and then there's a range of protein and fat macros. I don't think we know yet how to fully match and fully optimize the keto diet beyond keeping the carbs really low. 
So generally speaking, what that means is that the carbohydrate percentage is around 5 to 10%. You know, the fat is somewhere around 60%, 65, and, and the protein, you know, so they're for 30, 35. But what's fascinating also is that people eat less so that the percentages ramifications as if someone was eating a lot more. Uh, so it's actually not a high protein diet, even though people call it a high protein diet, not when you eat real foods, although it is a higher fat diet than most people have advised. But that was a misguided notion that a low fat diet would fix everybody. So beyond the carb being really low, I don't really know what the optimal macro ratio is. And I, and I really kind of discourage the over utilization of these tools to help you find that because it will sometimes make you eat more and then you won't lose weight or reverse diabetes if that's what you're trying to do. So the keto diet for diabetes and obesity is different than a keto diet for epilepsy. Okay, so basically trying to primarily aim at a very, very low carbohydrate and just trying to find a, a level where you're comfortable uh, with regards to the amount of fats that you're eating and the amount of protein that you're eating. With the addition that you're eating from a list of approved foods. Real that foods. Are, that are you know, meat, poultry, fish and shellfish and eggs, tofu products are fine if you're doing a vegetarian approach. And eggs are kind of the intersection between vegetarian and meatitarian, if you eat eggs, it makes it a little easier to reach the low carb and keto level. Right. And, you know, we were just talking about the fats and the fats being especially being high in the ketogenic diet or a very low carbohydrate diet. And there's this data about saturated fats, and it's a very conflicting statement uh, or a very, the data is very conflicting regarding saturated fats. The current ACC guidelines recommend uh, replacing saturated fats with unsaturated fats, but the data is very conflicting. The problem is that if you're eating animal products, they have mostly saturated fats. So how do you tackle that situation? Yeah, you know, I've been watching the evolution of the recommendations and the science about saturated fat. And I saw the first research presentation about saturated fat not being a problem 10 years ago. It was at a meeting of the obesity medicine group. It was called the uh, American Society of Bariatric Physicians at the time. And it was Ron Krauss and Patty Siri Torino's paper and now it's been replicated on several other occasions where when you take a meta-analytic view of the studies about saturated fat and heart health, there's really no relation. So actually that firm belief that we were all given in medical school and then the public learned that saturated fat is bad is actually not scientific. And so I have no concern with people eating more saturated fat on a low-carb keto diet. Now, you also have to understand that organizations that position themselves to have a certain stance are often not just scientific. So the American Heart Association will always say avoid saturated fat because that's what started the organization. <laughs> so you end up getting believers of that. It's almost like a religion and it takes a lot of science. In fact, really what happens is other organizations prop up that don't have that same belief. And, and, you know, they have the greatest name, right? American Heart Association would make you think that it's totally scientific. And it's really not. It's an organization that's funded by other corporate interests. 
Yeah, I think that's true for uh, many organizations yeah. that they're funded by this. And that's that's why it's very important to understand. And that's why the data is so controversial, just like anything in nutritional science. I mean, you try to find something. It's not going to be a concrete evidence that you'll find towards one thing. It's always going to be mixed. So you have to kind of take that into perspective whenever you're looking at any data. And, you know, it was interesting that I was actually looking at key that we used in India. And there's a lot of data that's coming out about that, especially in the Indian subcontinent. And they were looking at what ghee does to your lipid profile and doesn't do compared to say butter and again there's some interesting data that's coming out over there as well so basically showing that ghee might be slightly better compared to that but yeah this is saturated fats is is like one of the hottest topics and the hottest debates that happens in the lipidology world and in in the cardiology world and now in the obesity world i have no problem with ghee metabolically and nutritionally butter either so the interesting thing I've worked, I've had the good fortune to work with you know, geniuses, really. I mean, I, I'm I'm the medical guy and I, I position myself next to PhD geniuses, <laughs> you know, one in the nicotine world and then one in the nutrition world. And I have to say, Steve Finney, P-H-I-N-N-E-Y, is one of the nutritional geniuses of our time. And, and he theorized many years ago and then finally showed through Jeff Volek's lab at Ohio State, and Cassandra Forsyth was another author on that paper, that actually the saturated fat in the blood, the level goes down when you eat a high-fat diet. And it, it seems, how could you have less fat in the blood when you eat more fat? It's because you're burning it. So when you're burning carbohydrates, the saturated fat slogs around in the blood. And and so actually, this is um, the common sense just doesn't apply in some situations. And I have to say that probably no one in the American Heart Association has read this paper. I mean, I don't know for sure, <laughs> but they, they need to. I mean, so you have to you know, embrace all of the research that has good footing to incorporate that into your, your scientific framework and model if you want to be a scientist, right? That's true. That is true. You have to take everything in totality. Classic paper that by eating more saturated fat and, and less carbs, your blood saturated fat level goes down. Who would have thought? But it's because you're burning all the fat now. Right, right, right. And so what about fiber? We know that fiber is so important for us, right? For our gut health, for our gut microbiome. That's what they thrive on. So what about the fiber intake? Because these animal products don't have fiber in them. It's primarily the plant products. You know, that's going to be high carb, essentially. So what about the fiber? How do you incorporate that into your diet? So I got trained pretty early in evidence-based medicine. So I went to McMaster in Ontario and, and met some of the founders there. And David Sackett was a big teacher in the Society of General Internal Medicine for years. And the level of evidence for fiber just hasn't panned out when it gets to the randomized control trial level. So there are, there's a lot of hypothesis generating research that we see from nutritional epidemiology. And it doesn't pan out in the clinical trials. And same for fiber. So I'm not impressed that there's any lack of fiber. thing that is pretty reliable is you can have more bowel movements as a human if you <laughs> fiber. But actually, a lot of people don't like that effect of having fiber. It's a, one of the organizations that glommed onto low-carb diets years ago was the anti-flatulence organization. Sorry, I'm not impressed with the data for fiber once you get to the randomized trial level. And that really is the bar that we expect for a drug. 
We expect drugs to be multiple randomized controlled trials, and yet we don't have that expectation for nutrition, which is sad. We need to raise the level of evidence for acceptable diets. And I don't know how to do that. You know, there's no organization that will do that. But we need to keep the focus on good clinical trials. No, I agree with you. And I think uh, talking about trials, there was a very interesting study that I came across, the Diet Fits trial that basically looked at, you know, the genotype and trying to see if the nutrition could match that. And they obviously did not find that in their trial. Where do you stand with regards to, you know, matching the nutrition to the genotype? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of information that can be gleaned from this. And I'm hopeful if you study the entire macronutrient range, say from zero to 100% carbs, from zero to 100% fat, and then you keep protein about the same. Protein really is non-negotiable. We, we build our bodies out of protein. I think a lot of the studies that have been done do not have the entire macronutrient range. Well, I don't think they'll be able to find the appropriate <laughs> matching for people. But since we don't have that level of evidence, what we focus on in my office is the metabolic outcomes. So you can actually watch the triglyceride change in the blood based on the amount of carbohydrate in the diet. And and this, so fatty liver is a result of the carbohydrate in the diet, not the fat in the diet. And you can actually modulate the fatty liver and the triglyceride in the blood. And I've done that with some people who didn't want to be keto or they, you know, they didn't want the carbs to be 5% or 20 grams for the day. So I think the best diet, I think, will provide the best metabolic outcome for people, which is not just the, the weight and how someone looks, but also the metabolism being very clean, if you will, no diabetes, no other issue like that. Right. So is the low-carb diet for everyone? Can anybody do it? Or are there specific exceptions or some people who will not be able to do it? Well, it looks just at the metabolism, not its preferences and whether someone... Um, I'm talking about their clinical conditions or they have some underlying diseases, per se. So if someone came to me and said, I'll do anything you say in terms of food, so you don't have to worry about preferences, right? It's just like any other sort of diet program. If someone is unstable you wouldn't want to initiate something if someone's in the middle of a heart attack or stroke or ongoing stomach issue that's severe. But I think the low-carb keto diet, which emphasizes proteins over every other macronutrient, is really a healthy diet for anyone. I mean, you may need to add on. So for example, if I'm treating someone with heart failure, they may need to maintain the sodium restriction until the extra fluid is gone. So in kidney failure, they're on dialysis. You need to make sure they have the phosphate binders so they don't get elevated phosphate levels. So you, you have to add in the other dietary restriction. The other main one, if someone's on warfarin or vitamin K antagonist uh, blood thinner, you need to be very careful not to change the vitamin K containing leafy greens too much. But other than that, I was just asked to write the chapter on the book actually for contraindications and cautions. And Dr. Yancey and I at Duke wrote this chapter for a textbook that will be coming out next year. And we really couldn't find any absolute contraindication to a keto diet. If there is a inborn error of metabolism that you can't burn fat, that fetus or child doesn't live very long. 
So it's all you're doing on a keto diet is changing the major fuel from what you eat, carbs, to what you eat, which is fat and protein. <laughs> so it's yeah. not any you know radical big change. It's really just taking away the sugars, which and it surprised me that there really is no essential carbohydrate, which means that you don't have to eat carbohydrate. Your body can make all of the carbohydrate it needs from the other things you eat. Yeah, that's very true. I actually had Dr. Linguist on my show as well, and he mentioned the same thing. There is nothing, no essential carbohydrate, but there are essential uh, amino acids and there are essential fatty acids, which you don't need. That's right. So there's this question that we have, and this is a very interesting thing uh, that I came across was these lean muscle hyper responders, right? So these people go on a ketogenic diet and their lipid levels just shoot through the roof. And for most of the people, they'll see some transitional changes in their cholesterol levels. But in the end, we do tend to see that their uh, LDL levels will go down. But these people will have the opposite effect, wherein their LDL levels will just go through the roof. I don't know if you've had any experience with uh, any patients like this. And how do you treat that? Because what I gathered from this was they're looking at LDL particle size and the LDL particle size is going up and the hypothesis being that if it's a bigger size then that's not as bad as the smaller size LDL but when again you go to the or the lipidology literature we're still looking at primarily the LDL number that when you get the cholesterol report so how do you tackle uh, people who have this kind of a response to a, a low carb or a ketogenic diet i just have to echo what you said is that most people actually have a reduction in total in LDL cholesterol and especially if they have a lot of weight to lose or you're fixing diabetes, the or you start from a high cholesterol level to begin with, two-thirds of people will have an improvement across the board. The total cholesterol goes down, the LDL goes down, the triglycerides go down, the HDL goes up. These are the four things we look at on a standard lipid profile. If you look at the type of LDL, in general, it changes from the small to the large when you do a low-carb diet. And that's thought to be the rationale for why we could allow higher levels of LDL. But there are some extreme elevations in LDL in the general public who change to eating low-carb diet and also in elite athletes. They tend to have higher cholesterol levels. And this is one of those anomalies that the medical world will say, well, stop doing that diet. It's, it's always harmful and necessarily bad. Well, or is it? So there's actually a growing number of folks who are publishing papers who are kind of unraveling the whole cholesterol, LDL, you know, perfect hypothesis, which it never was, but it's because it's gotten into guidelines and you your paycheck might depend upon following a guideline. Now it's like it's gospel truth. But actually, a lot of people with heart attacks have normal LDLs, and a lot of people with high LDLs don't get heart attacks. So it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. It's a predictor. That said, the people who have this L lean mass hyper-responder banded together in a Facebook group, and they've garnered money in a online sort of study, either GoFundMe or some sort of platform like that, so that they can study themselves. And it's really kind of a sad testament, I think, that the medical community will tell you not to do it and won't even study it. And the people have to band together and collect their own data. The reason they're collecting their own data is they kind of sense that there's something wrong with this picture. They feel great. They Often they feel better than ever before. And there's this one little number 
that suddenly your doctor is having an anxiety attack. The Banpuri paper, which was the Verda Health big paper with diabetes and a keto diet and a keto platform with keto monitoring and all, Banpuri, that paper had a figure that showed pretty much everything got better except the calculated LDL. And, and it's all in one figure. I, I use that in my slideshows often because I go through this better, this better, this better, this better, this better, this better. And there's this one little thing here and I'll circle it. The LDL on average went up. <gasps> there's this big horror and gasp and no, 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 no. 29 out of the 30 things got better. And, <laughs> and if you're only going to be focusing on the LDL, yes, you're going to say, don't do that and all that, but I'm afraid you're going to be missing out. I've had people in my clinic at Duke for 15 years with high LDL cholesterols, and they're still alive. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just a predictor. So in fact, I do, I recommend if someone's doing this long term, that they measure their own arterial system. Now, sometimes the doctors won't order those tests for you. So you can get ultrasounds and a coronary score outside the medical insurance system. And you can see if you have arterial sclerosis, atherosclerosis. And if someone decides they want to do a keto diet for long term, because we don't have long term data to go by, I ask people to arm themselves with their own data. So they'll do serial ultrasounds of the carotid and aorta. They'll do serial coronary artery scores of the heart. You do need a doctor's order for that, but you don't need the system to pay for you. So I learned that often people will pay out of pocket for tests that the insurance won't pay for. And I know it's not fair, and all, but if someone really wants to know if they have arterial disease, you can actually get tests to look for it. You know, I thought when I was in training by now, every doctor, every internist would have an ultrasound machine in their office. You know, the technology's there. What we do is we tell people to do other things. Instead of that, I mean, can you imagine if someone was worrying about their carotid, you just pull out the ultrasound and check it, you know, but no, you have to get an order. And, you know, so the system is not set up to measure all those things, but we have the technology to do that. And that's how I deal with the lean mass hyperresponder. I don't tell people to stop doing what you're doing. I explain what's going on. I link them to this Facebook group and hopefully get involved in a study. And it actually may be this anomaly that changes the whole paradigm of cholesterol. Maybe. I'm reminded of the, the awesome discovery that there were a couple stars that didn't move in the direction of the rest of the, the stars. That, well, these were planets, and it was called the retrograde motion of planets. And that was the discovery that you know took, I think, centuries. But it led to the discovery that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Yeah. It was actually the sun. The heliocentric universe was discovered by this small observation. And I'm really excited to now that we can study low-carb and keto diets, that we need to understand the SNPs of the genetic differences and why someone might have this. It might actually give a clue to you know what really causes heart disease. And I've learned for a long time that it's inflammation, not the LDL cholesterol. I've kind of gotten that far in my scientific thinking because I helped to write a book called Cholesterol Clarity. And it was really just the podcast written out the transcribed podcasts of the scientists who were studying cholesterol 
and heart disease. And they've all kind of moved beyond just the LDL, but the clinical groups have not. And so inflammation, the pleiotropic effects of statins, I'm not saying statins can't work, don't get me wrong, but I think their focus on LDL is an overemphasis. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I'm a part of that group. Not that I'm a lean mass hyper responder, but I was just a part of this, this group because I was very curious as to what really goes on. And this is a, a different thing with than what one would expect. So it's uh, interesting to see how fit actually people look in, in the thing. And they're actually very down in their body fat percentage, but then they have these cholesterol levels that are just through the roof. So yeah, it's interesting the debates that happen in that Facebook group. Well, I mean, what I have to do is teach my patients about what LDL does. And, and I um, <laughs> will arm them with information. I say, you know, do you want to go in and be kind of a pest to your doctor? Ask your doctor what the LDL does. <laughs> they don't know. So, you know, the LDL is a, a fat-soluble glob that basically goes around in the aqueous water-soluble bloodstream. So it's carrying around fat-soluble vitamins. It's carrying right. around essential cholesterol and fats and, you know, it's not in there to cause heart disease. And yet that's really the extent of what we know about LDL, sadly. Most physicians don't know. Yeah. Who really does. <laughs> yeah. So do you think this is a medically supervised or should it be a medically supervised uh, program with regards to obesity or people sitting at home can start this? Well, I have a lot of experience in a clinical setting that if someone's on medications, the medications can become too strong. And I think it should be medically supervised. Now, you could ask me, what about this medicine? What about that? No, just if you're on medicine, <laughs> you know, find someone who can help you do this. And don't take it lightly because actually nutrition can be very powerful. I've taken people off 10 drugs. You know, it, it's taken time, but some of the diabetes medicines can be reduced on the first day or that they must be reduced. So I think it needs to be medically supervised if you are on medications or you're using it for a medical issue. But now for so many years of analyzing the nutrition, the, the essential nutrients are all provided. We're really just giving a different healthy way of eating for people. So I'm not concerned if someone has no medical problems, they feel well, I think anyone can do a keto diet that's properly formulated. It's not the internet keto that you're gonna read about from people selling their products, but I think it's just healthy eating. And you know, one of these astounding things that I never was taught is that babies are born in ketosis. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so when you feed them carbs, they stop the ketosis. And in some children, when you feed them carbs, you give them seizures. That's that ketogenic diet for epilepsy thing, which is, you know, it's usually not until they're eight or 10 years old that someone bumbles upon a keto clinic for epilepsy and they take away the carbs and the epilepsy has gone. You know, I use a brainstorming model of, that helps with flipping things upside down. You know, what if the keto diet, low carb eating was actually the proper diet, you know, the right diet, and that we've now turned off the ketones that should have normally be there, it should have normally been there. And there's another just kind of astounding discovery that people made on themselves, people with glycogen storage diseases called yeah. McArdle disease. When you run the muscle on sugar and there's no store of sugar, the muscle doesn't do well. But when you run skeletal muscle, like your leg muscles on fat, you have all this energy and you have access to it. And so these people figured out for themselves 
that a keto diet could fix or greatly improve this glycogen storage disease called McCardle disease. Yeah. That was just another kind of thinking in big picture view, what happens when muscles use fat? So last December, December 2020, a paper came out, what does heart muscle prefer? And, and they wrote the paper in kind of an astounding way, but I've known for a long time because I've asked a lot of heart researchers, actually the muscle prefers fatty acid. Yep. Yeah, and keep preferred fat. Yeah, heart muscle. Yeah, not sugar, not glucose. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you know, we're talking about muscle, and we're talking about what they utilize. Now, this leads me to you know this question, and I think a lot of my listeners will have this question about the exercise on ketogenic diet. There is some concern about doing heavy strenuous exercise on ketogenic diet. What is your experience with that? And uh, what do you tell your patients with regards to exercise? Not per se with weight loss, because obviously exercise is not the first modality that anybody would go to with regards to weight loss. But once they start exercising, what should they be cautious of? Well, you want to give us time to transition. So when you go from a carb eater and a carb burner, to a fat burner, there are changes your body goes through. Some people who exercise, even the weekend warrior type of exercise, tell me that they, you know, it takes a couple of weeks, to, maybe a month to get back to the beginning where they were before, but then they excel beyond where they were. Jeff Volek at Ohio State published a paper called The Faster Study, where they actually analyzed the metabolic rate and metabolism of elite athletes who use low-carb diets and who don't use low-carb diets and just showed that the human body can work either way. In fact, some people who are elite athletes who want to break records have found that they can go faster, longer by using a keto diet. This was dramatized in a movie called Serial Killers 2, <laughs> S-E-R-I-L. And in this movie, a documentary film, Sami Inkinen, who's a world-class triathlete and also founder of Verta Health, went in a rowboat with his wife, and they rowed from San Francisco to Hawaii in the open water in a boat that's like 15 feet. It's a rowboat. And they broke the world's record. And so you know, if you have any concern about exercising, you got to watch this movie. Now, in the movie, they show how they consulted with Steve Finney, Dr. Finney, and they took six months to fully keto adapt, which means fully maximize their fat burning. So you don't want to, you know, have your child's soccer team do keto two weeks before the season and expect them to do better, right? You want to, you know, do it in the off season, you know, get people used to not having carbs, at least a couple of weeks, I say, for the average runner or swimmer to adapt. But that serial killer's movie is just amazing. I'm going to watch that. I didn't know about that movie. I'm definitely going to watch that movie. Of course, there is also Serial Killers, Yeah, the original one, and then Serial Killers, too. They're both about elite athletes and keto. And uh, Dr. Westman, now, when we talk about ketogenic diet, how long does it take for people to get into ketosis? And do you recommend that they use, you know, we have these breathalyzers that are available that will measure your breath and you have these urine dipsticks. Now, obviously, the urine dipsticks are not very accurate, but do you recommend people use that? And how long does it usually typically take for patients to get into the state of ketosis? In my clinic, I don't use the ketone measurements. There's breath for acetone, there's blood for beta-hydroxybutyrate, and then there's urine for acetoacetate. 
So you're measuring different molecules. We don't fully understand how the molecules interchange with each other. And uh, so in my clinic, I teach a very low carb total gram per day where I know just about everyone will be in ketosis. So if the hunger is gone, people are losing weight or their diabetes is getting better, they're in ketosis. I don't have people measure. But I think the, the gold standard these days, the most reliable measurement is the blood beta-hydroxybutyrate measure, the Precision Extra, the Abbott, and then the Keto Mojo are all just like a blood glucose tool where you measure the blood sugar, but they have different strips that allow you to measure ketones too. And But I don't really recommend those. There's enough to worry about, but I know a lot of people do like to measure and there are ways to do that. I think part of the reason why people want to measure is just to see what would potentially throw them off the ketosis and you know how long it takes for them to get back. I guess that's why probably pe- people would use it. But do you see that problem often where people say there's a party or whatever and they go out and they have a relatively high carb meal and are they able to get back quickly to the ketogenic lifestyle? Yeah, so there's a wide variability in how long it takes to get into ketosis. Generally, it's a day or two, and the ketosis is matched or goes along with a reduction in hunger. But we found some people, and the classic history is they've been dieting all their life. They were put on their first diet when they were 10 years old, and now they're in their 60s. These folks can be knocked out of ketosis for two weeks. Oh, just wow. one meal. So one meal knocks them out of ketosis for two weeks to get back in which just goes back to the teaching that we have, you have to be very strict if your metabolism is like that. Now, if you're young, you're active, you don't even need to be doing ketosis or keto at all because you're otherwise healthy. This is going to be a day or two to get back in. But the hunger going down will be the marker for you to verify that, or you could check levels. But the older someone is, and I'm really clear about that, when someone comes for a therapeutic keto approach in my clinic, that you have to be strict every day. You know, there's no cheat days and we don't like that word. Ketosis is a fragile state that a little bit of carbohydrates can knock you out of. I see. Yeah. And what are the common problems that your patients run into when they're starting the program? And what do you tell them like, to be cautious of or what to anticipate when they're starting the ketogenic diet? Yeah, so the common term keto flu or keto adaptation is these side effects that you might get as you transition from carb burning to fat burning. Most people don't get the keto flu. It's maybe a headache or feeling weak for a couple days, maybe lightheaded. That's remedied or, or prevented by adding extra salt. So if you don't have high blood pressure, history of heart failure or kidney failure on dialysis, you wanna add extra salt. So we recommend, you know, it could be an electrolyte formula or it could be just bouillon cubes or crystals or broth in hot water. And you take one or two doses of those for the first week to reduce your chances of having this keto adaptation or keto flu side effects. I see. And with regards to, you know, there are a lot of products that are available in the market now for keto, like keto this, keto ice cream, keto snacks, keto cereals, this and that. What is your opinion regarding that? I mean, at the end of the day, they are still sort of ultra processed foods. And what I try to tell people is that try to stay away from these ultra processed foods, try to get to real foods as much as possible. But what happens, I mean, with your patients, do they kind of go to these cereals and these supplements or no? No, like you, I ask people to avoid them. 
and I ask people to eat real food mainly, not adding oils and butters and keto cookies and you know keto shakes, although every now and then that will work. So that if you mainly have a, a real food diet and every now and then you have some of those things, it can still work, but it depends on the metabolism. And if you're using total carbs, like I teach, not net carbs, like a lot of the products have on their label, you might get misled that it says, oh, two grams, and yet it's 20 on the back. And if you're trying to stay under 20 total for the day, that's going to make it not work. So you want to be careful about those products that are out there you know, until they're studied in a systematic way in research setting. You know, even I would love to, and I was trying to set up a paradigm where we'd get 50 people and we'd all give them a shake and we'd see what their ketones and glucose did. And sadly, that fell through. I want to get back to that. You have to be testing people with diabetes as well. You don't want to just watch the young people checking their glucose after eating something if you have diabetes. I want to be sure that these products don't have a different effect in right. those who have diabetes because they it probably will. Other products have different effects. And I want to be absolutely sure. Right. And the other problem, I think what a lot of vegetarians or vegans would run into is the fact that vegans are primarily going to be eating plant-based and plants have a lot of carbohydrates. Are there any options for them at all or they're stuck? Well, I think, again, depending what you're trying to accomplish, as I was putting together this book, End Your Carb Confusion, looking at other research as well as our research, I think people can be healthy having more carbs. Not everyone has to be keto. So I think you can lower carbs in a healthy manner, which means getting rid of the refined sugar and refined flour as much as you can. And it's a little harder to be vegan and keto if you're not having eggs, because you have to get a protein source that's low enough in the carbs to have ketosis. Sure. But if you're young and active and can tolerate more carbs, absolutely, you can do vegan and keto. And, you know, it's not, I don't have many uh, people in North Carolina who choose to do that. So I don't have great experience. Uh, the classic food in North Carolina is, you know, pork and beef, and it's an animal-based kind of geographic area. I see. You know, there's the other thing is what people try to do is that they'll try to mix things up and combine things. And of course, intermittent fasting, which also I believe is fairly powerful, and there's a lot of good data that's coming out about intermittent fasting. And I think in principle, it kind of works similarly because it also aims to reduce the insulin level when you're right. fasting. So what about combining the two? Is that safe? Yeah, I think the approach that's been most studied is the approach that I use. It's having people feel less hunger from within and then eating less frequently. And I think eating once a day, twice a day, intermittent fasting, meaning you're just not eating as frequently, you get the therapeutic benefits of fasting, which is fat burning, and you're still eating nutritious foods. I'm not a big fan of the total avoidance of food during a certain number of hours when you're hungry. That goes against the teaching that I've had, uh, that you want to allow yourself to have something to eat. When you are hungry, it'll fade away over time. And what's kind of crazy is the, the classic teaching of intermittent fasting is generally in a low-carb context in the community. But the uh, NIH researchers are studying intermittent fasting 
with relatively high carb content so that the research studies don't apply to the clinical setting when people don't have hunger. You know, the total fasting to me still isn't quite ready for prime time in terms of the studies that need to be done to show that there is no significant protein mass loss. And the popular version of intermittent fasting, one meal a day, keto is very popular, and but it is not necessary for the start. I mean, so I see it kind of as a second level kind of approach, but a lot of people are doing it first. So I prefer to start with a low carb if you're not hungry, just eat less frequently rather than, you know, you have to have a certain time window to get autophagy and, and all this other stuff. You know, I think you're getting the autophagy by having the fasting state. I haven't proven that. My hunch is that the people who are studying autophagy and think they're using the fasting as the tool. Really, it's just fat burning and the fasting, fat burning state that's allowing that to happen. And those folks haven't studied the low-carb LCHF keto approaches that we use clinically. Right. And I know, Dr. Westman, that you have a program, an online program, where you teach keto. Do you want to share about that and what you teach and how people can reach you and find you? Sure. Well, uh, the best place to look for my information uh, is drwestmanonline.com. That's D-R-W-E-S-T-M-A-N. O-N-L-I-N-E.com. And that will link you to several things. The End Your Carb Confusion book, which can be uh, found at any major bookseller, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And it's not just a keto book. It's more than that. It really incorporates three different levels of carb restriction uh, that um, you take a quick checklist and you may figure out that you don't need to be that strict about the carbs. And then the new digital online masterclass that we have is called Keto Made Simple and also the Stall Slayer. So if you really want some video level information, so it's like two hours of me giving you know lectures, but you know, not too deep a dive into it. But I think it's important to know what sugar does to us. And then you get the you know list of foods that we've used and studied in our clinic at Duke. Uh, the Keto Made Simple Masterclass is at the adaptyourlifeacademy.com. And uh, we've had some great classes. Uh, people love it. And uh, that's all just through the power of the internet teaching. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to put a link to um, all your resources in my show notes as well. Well, this was an amazing episode, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Westman, for joining me today. This was such an honor, and this was a lot of fun and a lot of great information. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.